Hey. Okay, so you're listening to the Mashup Americans, where grilled cheese is actually pupusas. Where babies eat kimchi on their mac and cheese. Or grilled paneer sandwiches with tomatillo soup. So delicious. And also, our babies all play Zingo, right? Like, my kids are way fierce about it. But more important than Zingo, did you know that there's actually a Settlers of Catan Jr.? Uh-oh. There goes my future. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to handle it the first time Clara beats me by monopolizing all the wheat. That's my girl. Well, mashup kids keep you on your toes. Hey! Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi, and you got it, fam. We're talking Mashup The Next Generation on the Mashup Americans today. Whether you've been doing this for a few years now, like me. Or just getting into it, like me. Or not even sure if parenting is on the horizon, or you're hoping desperately that that day never comes. If you are one, or, you know, live in America, raising Mashup kids is something we can all get into. Something I think we'd say we all need to get into. I mean, if we don't fix, like, the world that we're living in right now, we only have one hope. And they are at the playgrounds putting sand in their mouths right now. So much sand. So (laughs) much sand. That doesn't even taste good. It doesn't. And the texture, it's just like... (laughs) It's all wrong. So today we called in some pros for backup because raising the next generation of mashups sounds like a pretty tall order. Rumana Lam, first-generation Bengali-American, is a novelist and essayist on parenting and transracial adoptions. Uh, Christine Gross-Lowe is a first-generation Korean-American, a mom to four Korean-American Jews, and expert on parenting practices around the world. They're both going to join us with some thoughts on the special concerns and joys of raising these beautiful babies. Babies who do things like present Diwali as a Bangra dance party during show and tell in their second grade class in Atlanta while snacking on Thai shrimp crackers with their table mate. Did you just make that up? No, that's Henry, Lizzie's kid. (laughs) Guys, our producer's kid is joining us today, too. Ooh, well, what better expert on raising a mashup kid than a mashup kid? Exactly. So stay tuned. Think of this episode as a giant anti-anxiety pill about our future. We're entering the final stretch of the year, which are also the last few days for you to donate to the Mashup Americans and help make sure that we can keep making this podcast in 2018 so that we can keep bringing you stories and voices from Mashup America and, of course, a healthy side of laughing and crying and sometimes laughing, crying. So head to mashupamericans.com slash donate to donate at whatever level you can this season. So you could argue that we've been working on this episode on parenting for the past four and a half years, essentially the entire lifespan of the Mashup Americans. I mean, I was just returning to work from maternity leave from Alejandro when we started this whole thing. So much of what we did and still do with the stories that we run or conversations we have or events we plan is really just us attempting to answer our own (laughs) questions. Sorry. Uh, And so much of that is around parenting how we were parented, what our parents' lives were like and are like, what that means to us, and then um, how we want to apply that as parents ourselves, which is (laughs) really hard. Um, You know, the guilt, the the doubt, the culture, the food, the rules, which rules, open parenting, closed parenting, you know, it's a lot. 
closed parenting. I don't like, know. That seems <laughs> I like, think you just might have invented that new one. I, now there's a whole new one that we I just wrote a about. book about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know what our next guest would say about that? Wah, 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 wah. Wait, are we talking with <laughs> Nanny on Muppet Babies? <laughs> so close. Well, talk about a mashy show, but no, not Nanny. It's Henry, who is the seven year old kid of our producer, Lizzie. Henry was born in NYC, raised so far in Brooklyn, and just transplanted to Atlanta, so he has seen the world. He's also a member of a group even smaller than Latin Jews, Konkani Assyrians. His dad, Mangesh, is first-generation Indian-American, and his mom is, as Henry likes to say, a whole bunch of things, including a second-generation Assyrian-American. Well, we know Henry, but we're pretty excited to introduce him to you. I mean, we can't have a show about mashup kids without a mashup kid— And considering he's only been on Earth for a very small number of years, he's got a pretty cool perspective on what it's like to be part of Generation Mashup. I'm Henry Narayan Dignor. I'm seven years old. I have a little sister named Ruby. My parents are from Chicago in India. Well, he grew up. Up in Delaware. And I think of myself as a mix of you and Anu. That makes me Shindian. (laughs) Indian and Chicagoan. I go to Parkside in the city of Atlanta in second grade. There's not many Indian kids at my school. There's different types of ethnicities. I mean, we're all different. We have different shades of skin. When you look at someone by their shade of skin, it doesn't mean that you just judge where they're from. Some of my classmates asked me if I was Japanese. I was kind of puzzled. I mean, they didn't know yet, so I was like, I'm not from there. No. I'm Indian. I usually just tell them where I'm from and grin. But sometimes I tell them more about my culture because if you want to learn, I'll love to tell you. I would like to learn more about different places and study about what they celebrate and what they do. Now at my school, most people are African American or white. But some people are in the middle and brownish, like me. Not always, but do you find that you have friends who are kind of also brown? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I do like how we're kind of we're a little bit the same, but we're also very different. Um, Clara, my friend, she used to sit at my table. Clara's mom is from Thailand. I don't think Claire's dad is from Thailand. We didn't really know each other that good. Then we told each other about stuff, and I liked her more than at first. I thought we had a little bit of a bond, but now I'm, I'm really deep into her. We share snacks. Her mom was like, probably he's allergic, and he was like, but he says he likes it. And what did she tell her mom? She said, He's from Asia, like me. 
if you say to not talk about anything about your culture, what would you answer? I would think that I could try it for a while, but I wouldn't like it over time. Because you know what? I think it's really hard to keep part of yourself quiet. Yes. It starts to make you feel sad. What do you think? I get it. I think a lot of times parents worry. Um, We worry about making sure that you know about being Indian, but also about being American, about being Assyrian and Konkani and all these things. Do you think that's the right stuff to worry about? I don't think we should worry about it. You should be worried about if something's all right with your kid. What I need most from my parents is love. And what shows you love? Respect, being kind, and hugging. I love you, Henry. I I love you, Mama. Are you okay with being Shindian? Yes. (laughs) Actually, I made that up. to be seven again it's not easy but man it's pretty great to be young and you know full of questions and hopes it's true and if i could do it again and be so comfortable with the language of being a mashup like i know adults who don't talk as comfortably about identity and race as henry and his friends do Oh, unfortunately, we know a lot of adults. <laughs> um, but that is exactly the gift our next guest is working to give his kids. Ruman Alam is the author of Rich and Pretty, a book that made several best of lists in 2016. He made me very happy a few years back when he wrote a BuzzFeed opinion piece that said writing and parenting were not opposites and that he and many people all over the world and over the centuries have been writers and also parents. Right. You can be a quote-unquote working parent because parents who work outside the home are not new. Can nope. we just bust that myth forever and just never talk like that again? Yes, I would appreciate that. Great. I mean, por ejemplo, the day that Ruman came in to talk to us in the studio in New York, I was having one of those, like, I won't even call it a work-life balance day because there was no balance. There was just me, like careering from thing to thing it was like with the kids were in school and then we like i went to the office for two hours there was like a special event there was was there a hanukkah thing i mean i don't even remember at this point it was like that day might as well have been 15 years ago Mm -hmm. all i know is that somehow like sweaty and out of breath i managed to be sitting with ruman and he was so calm and that that was shocking and impressive to me. Right, because calm and cool with two boys under 10. How does that actually work? I mean, we wanted <laughs> to know, know. So we asked him all our questions, and we started at the very beginning, the very best place to start. How do you mash up? I am a first-generation American, the child of immigrants from Bangladesh, although when they emigrated here, it was not Bangladesh, but East Pakistan, And before that, it was, of course, India. I am gay. I am married to a white man. And we have two, we have the two most beautiful children in the world who are both black boys. So that is my mash. You have a lot. Pretty good. You've got a lot going on in there. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) I have so many questions. Wait, Uh, how old are your sons? My older son is eight and my younger son is five. You're an adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. How did you make your family? And did you know kind of setting out that you were going to have 
a transracial adoption or did you think that maybe you would adopt like brown kids? Like how did your family get uh, you made? You know, as a gay couple, uh, many of the adoption agencies in this country are related to the Catholic Church. And I, I'm not sure if any of them work with gay couples. But there happens to be a great old adoption agency right here in New York City on the Upper East Side called Spence Chapin. It's named after two fancy schools. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, my husband and I went to an orientation at Spence Chapin, and it felt really right to us. As a gay couple, I suppose the other option is surrogacy, which is an incredibly expensive and complex in its in its own way, and that was never really on the table for us. Did you seek out any resources or did Spence Chapin like help educate you on Absolutely. what it might oh, mean to like yeah. raise black children? As as much as they can. I think it is a very it is a lifelong process of education. But going through the steps leading up to our adoption were a rigorous process of education and self inquiry, actually. Mm-hmm. To it was kind of like going to uh Couples counseling, which I recommend to everybody who is even thinking about getting married, where you just kind of take stock of what your beliefs are about parenting. And adoption in this way, I think it's such a conscious mode of making a family. Mm -hmm. And because it is so conscious, it demands this kind of rigorous thinking that doesn't always take place when people just say, oh, let's try and get pregnant. Like, let's I'll go off the pill and we'll see what happens. And then, you, you know. We know what that journey looks like, and I'm not saying that that journey doesn't involve a lot of thinking about the kind of parent you want to be, but we were kind of forced to do this homework, you know? Right. In a way, we were lucky because the route by which we became parents was really the only route available to us. Mm -hmm. And so because fertility was not an issue, and I saw that it was an issue for so many of our peers, for us, the process was really sort of – it was untouched by any sadness, and I know mm. there can be a lot of sadness mm-hmm. around long attempts to conceive a child biologically. I, I see you, you know, marriages can suffer from that and, and your own sort of psyche can really suffer from that. And we didn't have any of that. And so we're very lucky. And I try not to get too mad when people say these insane things about adoption because everybody really does. People love to they say really crazy do. things about that. So. Well, I think part of what you're saying there, which I think is is really important to take stock of, is this idea of, for you, it, it was option A. Yeah. I mean, it was an exciting, happy thing. And, I, and I you know, a, and I should also yeah. just say that that's not to say there's not a lot of sorrow. There's something more profound in the adoption that exists between uh, our children's birth mothers and my children, who are still quite young. Mm. And so... They may someday, as young adults or as adults, feel a, a kind of profound loss around that mm. that I simply do not feel because mm-hmm. I didn't lose anything. Right. And so for me, it is a happy and warm thing, but it is not that thing for all of the parties involved. You wow. Know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that, like, you know, you're a brown parent to black children, and I am a... Uh, a uh, yellow Asian parent and East Asian parent to brown kids yeah. is that there's there's so I mean I delight my children because they're my children and also like I think about and I'm 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 scared by the prospect of raising a Latino boy and a brown boy in this world like in in trying to figure out like how do I prepare him for that when that's also not my experience yeah I think that's legit. But you're 
you're way it's too late now right? <laughs> right like i'm in it i'm in it he's mine um yeah and that is certainly something we my husband and i talked about um we talked about our own ability to raise you know future black men mm-hmm. right um as well as whether it was a disservice to the men that they will someday become you know mm-hmm. like is it is it selfish of us to to make this choice. And I, uh, clearly we determined that it was not. Uh, <laughs> and as to whether or not we are equipped to do that hard work, uh, I can't answer until they are grown men. Yeah. I, I actually can't answer it at all. They are, they're the ones who are going to have to answer that question. Do you talk to your kids about their blackness? I do. Uh, it's an incredibly abstract concept when you are only eight. Um, you know, you're still... he. My older son is still really a baby. And... Uh, he just his context for understanding what is black is very different. And uh, a lot of times he will say to me, in fact, he said it to me literally this morning. Well, you're you're black because I was doing his hair. He has, a, he has an incredibly thick, incredibly thick hair. Like, I mean, you can submerge it in water and the center of it will be dry. And I was doing his hair and I was set, I was pulling it back. And I was like, look, I could I could uh, I could give you cornrows if I knew more about having hair like yours. Um and the joke, of course, is that I'm bald, and so I don't know about that. <laughs> and uh, and I said, and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm not black. And he said, you're not black. And I said, no, honey, I'm not. You know this, like I am not black. You are black, and your brother is black. And of course, they look at me and they think, well, you're brown, and my skin is brown, and so we're all, you know, if this is if this is how we're defining black, then right. we're all black. They're they're not able to comprehend what we mean in this culture when we say when we use the word black. Mm. You know. But I feel a real responsibility to be very clear about that so that so that they know that it is fundamental to who they are. And um, I think talking about it openly is a sign of respect for it. And I think that that's something that has really changed in the culture since I was a kid mm-hmm. when it felt sort of impolite somehow to say, oh, she's Korean. Right. You know, and uh, something you whispered about, right? And I and, and, and I th- <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm literally like, she's Korean. You guys. <laughs> and I think that that is something that has really changed. And I think that, uh, and I'm just guessing, but I, I I suspect that talking around the reality is um, a weird form of erasure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to say you are black is just a very concrete and clear thing that I hope my children will hold on to. And there is no monolithic definition of what black is or feels like to black Americans. Of course, they get to decide that on their own. And that will be true for my children as well. They get to decide what that means for them. But they have to first know that it applies to them. Well, so any advice? Any parenting advice that you would send out into the world? The only parenting advice, really, that I think holds any water is that whatever is bothering you in this particular period of three months or six months or whatever will be wholly forgotten six months from now because you will have a whole new set of things that will be bothering you. So you go from sleep training to potty training uh, did we or did we choose the right preschool? Did we choose the right? Should we not have sent them to pre-K? Is mm-hmm. uh, should we have gone? Should we have gone to public school? Should we have gone to private school? You know, or should we be vegan? The circumstances that you're fretting over and that you're talking about with your spouse or your partner just they just they change. But the the sort of state of worry I think is the constant. You know, this when, too shall pass. Yeah, kind of. I mean, when yeah. we were dealing with the potty training of. 
I actually now can't even remember which one was harder to potty train, but there was one of them, and I was like, oh, this potty training sucks. And my husband said to me, well, no one goes to college not going to the bathroom. Right. And I was like, yeah. And now I can't even remember who was, which of my sons was giving me trouble with the potty training. So, you know, let that be a lesson, I guess. <laughs> you guys, and people say this all the time. They'll just figure it out. Like, that's like when I was getting ready for my wedding. They're like, you know, you're just going to, everybody just loses weight. You're just going to lose yeah. weight because <laughs> of right. this stress. I was yeah. like, that's not a thing. Yeah, that's a that thing that's never happened to me. A... I'll lose weight because I go on a diet. Right. <laughs> you know, like, that's how you lose weight, guys. No child ever went to college without being potty trained. This should be cross-stitched and hung on the walls of homes of all the parents across this great nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm also thinking not for the first time, and there might be something to this, is that all that we can do, like all that I can do as a parent is just the best that I can do. You know, like I can read all these books and educate myself and try and be clear with my children about who they are and talk openly about their identities, but there's no security that anything here is going to go right or wrong. Like, all I can do is just wait and see what these babies tell me um, or that their therapist maybe tells me later that I try and get out of them. Um, let's just say we'll save for their therapy bills as well. Yes. Uh, well, College my, tuition, therapy bills. My in-law's <laughs> rule was we'll pay for therapy until you're 30, and after that it's no longer our fault. Um, <laughs> so basically the moral is to have a college fund and a therapy fund for our children. Um, you know, seeing and waiting is tough. And it's also not necessarily my strength. Um, Is it anybody's? I mean, we're just not those kinds of people. (laughs) Um, So I think our our response to our anxiety is just to ask more experts on what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. We doubled up by bringing in the brilliant Christine Grosslow. Who is also a mashup who really knows how to make a mashy family. Christine is the author of Parenting Without Borders, Surprising Things Parents Around the World Can Teach Us. She's also a journalist who writes on history, education, philosophy, and global parenting and has been published in The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and basically everywhere. Everywhere. I had actually spoken to Christine a few years back for TED, and when we decided to do an episode on raising mashup babies... We all were kind of like, we wanted to talk to her again. In fact, you were the one that were like, didn't you write a story on parenting? And because my mind has been lost since becoming a parent, I couldn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, but she's also (laughs) truly extraordinary, not just because she's a Korean Jew, which is our sweet spot. And we had very specific (laughs) questions for her. But uh, she has four kids. So right there, she's an expert. But then also her family lived in Japan for five years and she wrote a book on it. So... Like I said, I'm not great at waiting, so let's just go get into it. So, Christine Grosslow, how do you mash up? Let's see. Um, I'm Korean-American, first generation. My parents immigrated here right before I was born. Um, And I grew up in a really small, almost all-white town in rural Pennsylvania, um, I married a Jewish American um, white man, and we have four children, two of whom were born in Japan. So we have both a sort of mashup identity, also a bit of an immigrant feel because we lived abroad when our children were young. How old are your kids now? So I have two boys who are 17 and 15, and then the girls are 11 and 8. Wow, you really did say, it, Christine. Yeah, Christine. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> 
hats off to you. So not only are you an expert in your field of research and parenting, you also can talk from your personal expertise, which is something we are really excited to talk about. <laughs> well, it's an expertise point of hardship, I'm sure. I mean, it's just <laughs> going through the trenches as a parent, and especially when you're a mashup parent, is, is, um, you sort of have to chart your own course. Yes, mm-hmm. and so I think that is something that is so interesting to us too, especially because you know Rebecca and I have younger kids, significantly mm-hmm. younger. My my son is four, and my daughter is two, and Rebecca mm-hmm. has a one year old baby. So, I mean, for me, for example, we're just starting to enter into like the older one asking about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his identity and like asking about his culture like right. he knows that we're korean but ironically mm-hmm. we all speak spanish in our house and mm-hmm. then he doesn't like quite get that his roots are colombian and mexican he's just right. like we're korean y espanol like yeah. he, so that's I, fascinating yeah and i'm i'm interested are do your kids being teenagers and like mm-hmm. kind of entering into that like older kid range, mm-hmm. how do they identify? Well, I think that their identity has changed over time and changed and shifted, and that's probably one of the really good things about being raised as a mashup kid or a third culture kid because you see that identity has a sort of fluidity to it. The boys were born in America, so they they felt you know somewhat. American when we moved to Japan and then living there for five years, they, they identified very strongly with being um, in Asia and being Asian. And, and then we came back here maybe about, let's see, seven years ago. And over all that time, um, they have shifted back and forth, I think, between feeling more Asian or more Asian American versus well, I don't think that they ever really felt like they were mainstream American. They've always felt a bit on the outside. But the difference between them and me is that they have felt very proud of that identity. And when I was growing up in my all-white town in Pennsylvania, I felt like it was something kind of, you know, that, that put me at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of something I really wanted for them was for them to have a strong sense of pride in having this hybrid identity. And I feel like it hasn't just advantaged them when they go over to Asia. They they look at any other culture, a friend from any other culture, and they sort of understand just what difference means. Mainstream America is not the only point of reference for them, and that's something I think that's a valuable gift that all of us parents of, of hyphenated children um, can give them. It's so exciting to think about how um, how that's changed generationally, like your mm-hmm. children's kind of pride in their mashiness right. and in contrast with your own, you know, struggles with that in in this very rural or white Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. town, which is astonishing to me and we can unpack in another episode. (laughs) But um, how have mashups, you know, how have mashups influenced parenting culture in the States? Is is this one of the results of that? Yeah, I think that, um, well, there's been such a shift. And I sort of remember when I was just graduating from college, and there was all this talk about this word multiculturalism, which was completely new then. And for the first time, it felt like it was a real source of pride to be eating ethnic foods and to understand other cultures and to be reading across cultures, etc. I mean, I think people did that um, on a more, you know, limited basis before that. Um, but it acquired this cachet that I think was really valuable. And um, I think that that has 
really shaped American parenting. You know, I um, if I look, say, at a parenting magazine, if I'm at the doctor's office, I'm flipping through Family Fun or something like that. Yeah, I family, that, but like a, an issue from like two years ago. Yeah, but yes, <laughs> I of know. course. <laughs> but the, the, the interesting thing is if you compare them to when I was actually first raising my children, my, my boys, um, it it feels like there's so much more awareness of and interest in um global issues, global parenting, global um, foods, everything. I mean, the danger is that it can be a little superficial. It's like you don't you don't learn about another culture just because you're eating another culture's food. And yet at the same time, that's a really important sort of pathway into understanding that we are not the only culture and country on earth. And I think that that um, is definitely a real change from how things were when I was growing up or when my children, my first, you know, my first two boys were very young. I also feel like um, another thing that's, ha- that's changed is that at least where we live, um, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they are most definitely not alone in being um, hyphenated kids. So it almost feels like, um, you know, everyone else is kind of like you in being different. Right. Well, so, I, th- I mean, you wrote the book on how parenting is different across different cultures mm-hmm. around the globe. You know, what What makes American parenting unique? Um, I think that what I think of when I think about American parenting is that it's very, we, we have such an emphasis on uniqueness. And I think that's both a positive and a negative. I think um, um, we just are a country whose ethos is, is that of sort of being different, being independent, being unique. That's sort of like in a way, that's sort of how this country was founded, you know, breaking away from traditions and norms. And I feel like I see that um, reverberating through parenting. You know, we chart our own sort of unique parenting path. And I think that that gives us a lot of freedom and leeway and ability to break from possibly not very helpful norms. Mm-hmm. Um, it also can cause anxiety because it is all up to us. I mean, we're not following necessarily a kind of a uh, an already carved out, you know, we're not following a path that's already been laid out for us. I think that um, in many ways, if we are going to be parenting in the way that we believe is best for us and our family and our children, um, it also means there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with it. And, you know, I think a lot of, there's, there's just, it's been documented that there is a perceptible rise in parental anxiety. And I think that some of it comes from the freedom and the responsibility of charting your own course. How have you thought about the mashup of these things in terms of your own parenting, knowing that you can draw from the traditions that you come from or the wisdom of, of your family or, mm-hmm. your, you know, and also being able to uh, do something wholly new because your family is unique? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in my own family, it's been an evolving process, but I've kind of learned to trust that it's an evolving process. Oftentimes, we can be made to feel very anxious, like if we don't do everything exactly right, our children are going to turn out terribly. And that is also a kind of both modern and American phenomenon, that there's so much responsibility on us as parents to shape what our children's future will be like. And I think that um, living abroad and seeing that completely different things were valued as being as considered, you know, were considered to be good parenting was really freeing for me. I'm not doing my children any favors if I'm being overprotective um, because I've seen with my own eyes that children who are raised in less protective ways um, 
not only do fine, but may actually even flourish and, and feel more, seem more independent and have more confidence, um, which is also borne out by a lot of research. And so I think that, um, you know, in raising my children in this sort of mashup way, I've, um, it's given me more confidence. I mean, I'm human, of course, if I feel, you know, it's, it's very easy to be, um, to feel peer pressure and to feel like, oh my gosh, everyone else is doing this except me, and you know, am I am I doing my child a disservice, etc. But for the most part, I think that it's given me a, a kind of freedom from the worry about how my children will turn out based on what I do. You can't see. We're, we, Amy and I see each other on video right now. And we're just <laughs> nodding. We're like, yes, yes, <laughs> go on. That's so that's why I'm like, I need specific examples. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I, mean, I would actually for... to feel less anxious. I think one of the things that um, was truly helpful for me was to see how many young children around the world um, roam on their own without adults with them, uh, and I mean really young, like three, four, five years old, um, walk on the streets. They can find their way. You know, they. I, I, I mean, I in Japan, and I think in um, some of the other countries that I looked at, um, Switzerland, Germany, um, Finland. They're usually walking to school on their own by around age six. If your child learns how to walk, my child would walk a mile to school through traffic, through all these side streets. It was a very complicated route that took me as an adult a couple of days to master. Once he um, you know, had learned that by walking with me a few times, he was just doing it on his own every day. So um, to let a six-year-old loose um, in an urban area for, um, to walk a mile to school, I think, is not something that we would ever think would be safe, not just because of our fear of, you know, predators or snatching or whatever, but I think we also are not sure that children are capable of that. Um, but the truth is that they are capable of it. It's just sort of what our expectations are and then what exposure we give them to the skills they need to cultivate to be able to do that. What? What parenting thing do you do that your parents never would? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Um, one thing that I think that I emphasize more than my parents did is um, is the way that I show love and affection to my children. Um, so it's not that my parents were the stereotypical, um, you know, never say I love you types. In fact, they said and say I love you very, very often to us. But... Um, I one thing that I try to do with my children is is really like um ask them how they're feeling and sort of try to get um, their emotional pulse and mm. sort of talk to them about how many different feelings are acceptable. It doesn't mean you should be acting on all those feelings, but to feel them talking about their feelings I think is basically um a real departure from how I was raised, and um, and I really like it. I really like to do that, and yeah. and I think that you know it makes for wonderful conversations. What happens if we just start calling you every day or texting you about parenting? <laughs> Definitely do not think of me as a as a, an expert. I'm just <laughs> no, no. Just, just as also you've studied it, but also you're you're an expert because of your lived experience as well, and it's so deeply like. Um, on the nose for us <laughs> as Koreans like, and Jews yeah, yeah you no. really nailed it so Amy and I are like uh-huh. <laughs> I have a, where's the part where I hijack this and literally just be like so another thing that happened what do you think about that <laughs> well so here's a question having a Jewish family living in Asia like mm-hmm. when did 
when did your kids or when do most kids become conscious of a, some sense of otherness that they have, whether mm-hmm. it's their race or their religion or um, their kind of culture as Koreans growing up in Japan? Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I think, you know, studies have shown that for black kids and kids of color generally in the U.S., families are having conversations about race significantly earlier with their kids than white families do. Yeah. And even to the point of, like, sometimes white families don't have conversations with their kids about race right. at all. Is there a best practice around this? Like, in kind of my laywoman's reading of things, it was mm-hmm. like, you know, as, as early as three, kids mm-hmm. are starting to, like, organize and group everything mm-hmm. according mm-hmm. to categories, including people and their skin color. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that the, the characteristics that they can actually see, they're they're pretty aware of. I mean, I think... Even infants have been shown to be aware of certain differences. And so um, having these conversations is something that families of color are probably doing earlier than um, white families if they're doing it at all because they are faced with this reality every day. What I would do is I would not take the lead. I would, um, if it came up, like when they were very little, it would only come up once in a while. Once they were in preschool or so, I think that we were having conversations more frequently, I was reading them books about diversity and difference. I mean, books that show, that demonstrate diversity and difference, and not by sort of calling it out, but just like the protagonist just happens to be Latino or just happens to be Korean, etc. And I think that the problematic thing is when you're reading them books where the protagonist of color or of difference is facing some hardship based only on that, that mm. fact. Because that's not the reality for most of our kids. They're just living their lives and being um, ethnically or, um, you know, different in some other way is is just one of many things that they're dealing with in their lives, but it's not the sole catalyst for some terrible hardship in their lives. And so I, I would just sort of have these conversations more matter-of-factly. And um, definitely I think that every family should be um, – Taking the reins and sort of talking about it um, by the time they're four, five, six years old, I think is is really important. And it can help. I think research has shown that that also helps shape them away from bias in a way. You know, I think that if we just let let it go, and here I'm talking about maybe parents of white children, if we just let it go and don't talk about it, we're uncomfortable talking about race. That's actually what can lead them to harbor biased views or racist views. What is your best advice for mashup parents? Are there any best practices for, you know, supporting your kids as they explore their identity, for transmitting and, like, kind of honoring culture, retaining it for your kids? Okay, so I I went into parenting with raising children with a strong sense of their own um, diverse identity as a major component, like a major goal, because I think of a, it was a reaction against having been raised in a small town where I felt so much like it was something I had to hide or that I had to be ashamed of. And so I made a real concerted effort to expose them to the best of what their diversity brings to the world and to the table and to their own lives. I made an effort to reach out and find other families that looked like us, that parented like us, that ate like us. Um, I, you know, exposed them to lots of books, as we were talking about, and movies and um, songs and, um, 
you know, travel as much as we could whenever we could. But even if you can't travel, there's so many ways to bring the world to you. Um, and I just wanted them to know that they aren't alone. Um, and that's what I would say if I were going to put a concerted effort toward doing something um, that can give your children a sense of pride and confidence in their own mashup identity. Um, but the other thing I would say is that as a parent, and this goes for all parents, we have to feel confident about what we're doing and understand that so much of what we're told we're supposed to do is cultural and is contextual and it's not really, it's not necessarily a best practice. It's just what people think is best practice. That's why I found researching parenting across cultures to be so interesting because it gave me a much larger toolbox from which to pull, you know, and to, to sort of think about what might be the right thing to do for my child. I mean, I just, I love the idea that I don't have to do everything right and that it might even be better if I totally let go of that idea. Right. And that giving our kids the gift of mashiness, of knowing more than one culture and sometimes languages, of understanding there isn't one way of doing things, of being so very American by being different, that that might be the best thing we can do as parents. That's amazing. I mean, I really do feel calmer and also excited. Like, I'm excited to see the next generation and what they bring. I'm excited to see what they do to, like, shape our lives and our cultures. I mean, I feel ready to do the much less glamorous work of, like, yet another bath time and yet another 6 a.m. wake-up call. So... I think I needed this conversation. Oh, my God. I'm, mine's a 5 a.m. wake-up call, so we'll get onto that later. <laughs> I also needed this conversation. So for even more, we have a list of Christine's favorite mashy books for kids on mashupamericans.com. And while you're there, you can donate to help keep this podcast coming to you with more mashup heroes and wisdom. By giving whatever feels comfortable to you, you can help make more episodes of The Mashup Americans. So that's it for this week. The Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lair. And me, Amy Choi. Our producer is the great Lizzie Jacobs. Music this week by DJ Rob Swift and a lot moment. Shout outs, Anna Elkers, Jeree Roach, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Justin Levy. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio KPCC. Bye. Bye.